Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Living With Power Hope podcast. We are well into this journey now, and if you've been with us before, then then you know that our stories here are about hope, uh, the hope that we can find in Jesus. But uh, man, some of the stories are better than others. And today, I'm telling you guys, I think you're going to love this story. Uh, it's going to help you find hope no matter where you're at in your life. Uh, I was just telling our guest, Alia Joy, she is an <coughs> author of an amazing book that found it immensely challenging and, and a really an easy read, which I think to do both those things is remarkable. The book is called Glorious Weakness, Discovering God and All We Lack. Uh, I met Alia in, um, through Common Friends through the Red Bud writers. I don't think we've ever met personally, unless you were at the Red Bud retreat a year ago and I somehow missed you. No, we haven't met in person. All right. Well, she lives all the way out in Bend, Oregon, which might be part of the reason I'm in Chicago. But I look forward to the day where I'll meet her. She's a wife, mother, daughter, cancer survivor, writer, a woman uh, who is deeply connected to the Lord. And it came through in the pages of her book. So I am really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. So uh, maybe we can start with some easy things. Like, tell us how you're like, what do you do in a typical day right now? Your book came out, what, a couple weeks ago? You've been on sort of a roller coaster right now. Yeah, well, t- I definitely the couple, last couple of weeks are not my typical typical days because of the book launch. So <laughs> it's looking a little different. Let me ask you this, because I, I, we're going to get into the book. And if people don't know much about you, like, I didn't know a whole lot about you. Uh-huh. And so I had read the blurbs in the back of the book. So I got an idea that this was a powerful book. And I, and I had heard people talk about it. And, and then I kind of got a glimpse. I mean, you don't need to read a lot to know that you've struggled with some mental health issues. And uh, if you've looked at any of the titles of this podcast, we certainly like to camp out there a little bit and delve into that as it pertains to the church and how people deal with it. But you're living this um, story that, but then you wrote about it. And so did you foresee how this would be received by the public, the book, the story? Um, no, I don't know that you can ever really know, um, really know what your words are going to do in the world. I mean, I think that's part of the thing you write but kind of in solitude. And then you just kind of hope for the best. But I did feel, I mean, I've been writing about mental illness for quite a while online on my blog and different articles, uh, different um, contribution sites. And so um, I did know that my readers, I feel like when I was writing this book, I I had a very narrow focus. Um, I was focused really on the, on a very specific reader. And it was the reader that's been on this journey with me, you know, since I started writing about this. And so, um, I have been pleasantly surprised that it's gone beyond that, um, that specific reader and what other people are. I mean, I couldn't drop, stop reading the book and I loved it. And I also hated it. And I, right. Right, I mean, have people said that to you? I don't, I didn't know what to do with parts of it. The part in the beginning that you talk about the ER just, just really gutted me in some ways. And, and I, and I don't say this about a lot of books. In fact, I told my friend Tina, who I interviewed last week on the podcast, she were running it this week, and I, she knows because we just traveled for a meeting together, and I started reading a book she recommended, and I, I went to three or four chapters into it, and I was like, I hate this book, I'm not finishing it, even though everybody else liked it. Your book, I couldn't stop reading, and I, and I even said to her, I said, I didn't like it, and yet I loved it, but I think what I didn't like about it is how painful some parts of it, of your story are, and I just felt so... Almost like I was looking at something I wasn't supposed to be seeing, but that I needed to yeah. see. Yeah, you know. So, <clears throat> oh, go ahead. Go on. Well, I want to say I want to. I think the people who are listening might not understand that because they don't know much about you. So why don't we just bring them up to speed? I really feel like it's my privilege to introduce them to you. So you talk a lot about your upbringing and poverty, and you've had a hard life. 
Yeah. <laughs> when did you first realize, like, oh my gosh, I'm not like living the American dream? Tell us a bit about that background. Yeah. So, you know, we came back from Nepal as missionaries. My parents, um, you know, didn't have any degrees or any um, really career ambitions. They really thought they were going to be missionaries overseas uh, forever. And um, and then I got sick with uh, leukemia. I was four when I was diagnosed. Do you remember um, that? I remember the hospital in Holland um, a little bit. I remember, you know, being poked and, and certain like, I don't remember it, the, the entire, uh, the entire thing, but yeah. yeah. Um, and so we came back and um, there were a lot of periods. That should have been like you were no longer missionaries. Right. That was yeah. That. And so we had to stay out of a um, majority culture that, you know, that was, didn't have the proper medical care to be able to take care of me. And so afterwards, when I was, you know, healing, when we were faced with this you know, nine to five American church, American culture, and my parents just didn't fit into that very well. Now, tell us a little bit about them, though, because they have a unique story, too. So you talk about your dad quite a bit. Both your yeah. parents really have had a profound impact on you. Tell us briefly. Yeah, about so them. my mom grew up. Um, her mom was a single mom. Uh, she never knew her dad. And... Um, she became a Christian like in her teens through a summer camp. Um, and she, huh. she's huh? Asian. Yep, Asian American. She's, she's Korean and Japanese. And um, she didn't know the Japanese side. That was her father. Um, doesn't know anything about him. But um, her mm-hmm. mom was an alcoholic for a lot of her life. Um, but she, she came to know the Lord in her teens uh, through like a youth camp kind of thing. Her grandpa was a Christian. Um, and then... My dad was, uh, he grew up in just sort of abject poverty. Uh, his mom was illiterate. He grew up in the South. Um, he got into a lot of trouble, you know, got arrested uh, many times and um, mm. left home, pretty much left home around eighth, seventh or eighth grade um, and just kind of um, I don't know, lived with people and moved around just kind of a hippie, yeah. hippie lifestyle, lived in different communes and um, was hitchhiking uh, one time in Hawaii and got picked up by this little old lady, this little uh, Episcopal lady who felt that she was, she drove by him and she felt that she heard God tell her, uh, turn around, pick him up. He's mine. And so, yeah. Which is remarkable, uh, yeah. right? And I mean, she's never picked up a hitchhiker. By. And my dad was, you know, he was pretty, he'd been sleeping on the beach and had, you know, eaten, uh, like unripe fruit and had been really sick. So I'm sure he looked, he looked pretty haggard, but she picked him up and um, she dropped him off at uh, teen challenge Maui, um, which was a, like a center mm-hmm. that took in, uh, they still have teen challenges, but that one was unique in that the, the people that were running it kind of ran it more like a family, uh, like a mom and dad. And, you know, he decided to stay uh, mostly because it was a, uh, you know, free bed and food um, but he had all his ideas about Christianity and the church and, you know, everything that was wrong with Christians. Um, and over time of being there, he ended up meeting Jesus. So then my mom was a counselor um, at that same camp and they met and uh, ended up getting married. That's interesting. So that's, that's most, I mean, even that's sort of very divine in the sense that, Sometimes you would think like she's the counselor, right. he's there being, you know, sort of, let's right. to use a clinical yeah. term. They don't recommend that. I mean, it's just <laughs> that. It's sort of, 
right, right. So they get married and then they have this like like their whole life. I kind of connected yeah. with their style of Christianity, you know, like you're all yeah. In. I mean, they Tell got you know, it was that. sort of like the the Jesus movement was going on. I think there was a lot of like the rapture is coming, and so they they really believe like the world is coming to an end, and it's our job to make disciples. And they took it super literally, you know, and they were like, you know, we feed the poor and we care for people and we love our neighbor and we, we evangelize. And so, yeah, so they, um, they did, they, we moved overseas with us. I spent my first birthday in Holland. We were in Europe for a while. Then we were in Nepal. Um, and they were just extremely idealistic. Like they just believed that God would, you know, God said he's going to provide, he was going to provide. We went to Nepal with, I think they had $75 in pledge support for a family of four. And they, you know, they oh, went. Wow. And so, and God did provide, you know, for us, the community. And, but, um, but yeah, they were always sort of those kind of people that, um, that just had this, I mean, tremendous faith. Um, but so God yeah, was like a right. dent in their plans by. No. And, it, and I think for them, it was coming. really, it was difficult because coming back to the States, you know, living with that sort of radical extreme faith, the way that they did coming back to, you know, American, North American Christianity, that's very, that they saw as very dysfunctional and sort of tepid and everybody, you know, everybody builds their little kingdom. And then Jesus is kind of an accessory, you know, and, and they, um, they got very Mm. disillusioned and very bitter in coming home. Um, And so that was a really rough Mm. period of time for our family. The, the years now, following uh, you guys moved back to Hawaii yep. and then we moved to Albuquerque. And so, but, but let's talk a little bit about the Hawaii. It was after, where was it that you came to know the Lord? You were a teenager and <clears throat> I came to know the Lord in Hawaii, but we had moved. So when we came back from Holland, after I'd been diagnosed with leukemia, we lived in Hawaii for I think two years. And then we moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I spent most of my childhood and early teen years. Um, and then we moved back to Hawaii my oh, junior year. Hawaii and beaches and Maui and like, but <laughs> paint us the picture of what you are. It's a bit stunning, you know, to even to hear where you are, you know, what God has done, even edu- in every regard. I'm just astounded by God's grace in your life. And I, I, I really, I, you're a brilliant woman, and but you grew up really poor. Yeah. I mean, we had pockets of, of being, you know, nor- my dad did different jobs at different times. And so there were times when we were, you know, okay, probably doing better. And then there mm-hmm. were times when we just really struggled. Um, and I think it was set against the backdrop of being in a neighborhood. We had bought the only fixer upper, like really mm-hmm. fixer upper house in a middle-class neighborhood. And so it also stood out that we were poor because we were uh, uh, next to people that mm-hmm. didn't struggle financially at all. And so when we were struggling, you know, we would have, we had like an old pacer car that you'd have to like roll down the street and pop the clutch to get going. <laughs> the starter didn't work, you know, those kind of things. And that was like our family car, not yeah. like, you know, and then everybody else, you know, turned 16 and their parents buy them a car. So it was that kind of um, community mm. that we lived in where when you struggle and when you don't, you know, it's embarrassing uh, to not be able to keep up. I will say we never, I was never homeless. We never, you know, I, we did struggle with poverty when me and my husband first got married. Um, and for, you know, a number of years, he was a construction worker. I was sick. Mm -hmm. And so he was the only one working, you know, minimum wage job for two people. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so there were a lot of times when we really 
we really struggled. That was more in my adulthood. So yeah, there have been pockets of times when it's just been really, really hard. Uh, well, you write about it magnificently and I, and compassionately. And I, and I, I think I, I, I felt a, a healthy amount of conviction and I, and I, I really appreciated that. And I, you know, I couldn't, you know, you just, you read it and sort of feel a little bit like, I don't know, dirty in a, in a sense, and but not in a bad way. And I, I just feel like, I think we just, like your description of how Christians help the poor is so powerful. Yeah. I'm sure you've been told that. And it just, it moved me. And I think if, if you're listening to the podcast, you got to read the book just to understand that. And so however long or short time you've spent in that, I think you do a remarkable job of explaining the heart of people right. who are walking through need. And I think that's a gift. And, and again, as much as you hate, like the whole essence of your book is glorious weakness. So I get it, but I appreciate it. And I guess even before the end of this, I want to tell you, thank you. Cause that really, that really affected me a lot. And I, and I just want to just pause for a moment and recognize that because now you go back to Hawaii and, you're still like you're you face them like your parents think this is where God wants them to go right. back, right? Yeah. Yeah. What the heck? You know, yeah. what happened? Tell us about that. So we um my dad took a job with a ministry and they promised us a house and a car as part of like their salary. And um so we sold our house in Albuquerque. We moved to Hawaii, middle of my junior year. Um by then I'm extremely angry at God, extremely angry at Christianity, and pretty darn mad at my parents for moving me. You know, and, and because I'm so angry at God, um, I, I, you know, was like, I can't believe you guys are doing this again. You're, you know, you feel like you heard God and you feel like we're supposed to move our whole family to Hawaii and, you know, whatever back to missions, which didn't work out well for us the first time. Um, and so we get to Hawaii and we look at, we go to look at the house that the ministry has provided and nobody had been there to check. It was on a different island. So it was on the big island. Mm. Nobody had been there to check it in years. It's on the rainy side of the island, Hoa, and <clears throat> it is unlivable. It had been um, gutted. There had been squatters living there. The, the I mean, all the subfloor had been like mm. you know it was down to the subfloor, the concrete. There's pooling water. There are all the windows are broken. Uh, they pulled out all the plumbing. I mean, it was wow. just there's green mold, you know, everywhere. Mosquitoes. You spent the night there for a while, like you stayed. Or no, really, like, we just I mean, my literally my dad um, showed up there and was like, "This is, you know." And I mean, so we, we were, were like yeah. I say, in the you know, we were in Nepal in the early '80s, so you know, we lived without a lot of the yeah. amenities. Yeah, <laughs> right. you know, we weren't like super high maintenance, but this was. I mean, it was just absurd, and so. Um, he contacted the ministry and they agreed to pay like half of the rental on a new home. I mean, it was just, you know, kind of absurd, but anyway, um, it just reinforced all of the things that I already thought about God, that God is a God of scarcity, that he doesn't provide, that he's cruel, that it's ridiculous. You know, here are my, my foolish parents choosing to go to Hawaii mm -hmm. to serve God. And this is what he provides for those who serve him. And the people that seem to be serving so themselves, the people that, you know, went to college and got degrees and, you know, had their 401k and bought their, you know, four bedroom house with, you know, walk-in closets. Like they yeah. all seem to be doing great. And we were just continuously suffering. And I was like, we got the short end of the deal. Like God sucks, right. you know? Um, right. Right. Yeah. Right. So that was really, um, that was, but then that was where I met the Lord. So, you know, um, it was its own 
containment. <laughs> was it? Yeah. So, so you sort of had this miraculous moment, but like you weren't even looking for him at that point, were you? I mean, what? How, were you- oh no, not at all. <laughs> I was really, really, really mad at God. Did you realize at that point? I mean, you're a teenager, I think. At that point, I mean, did, did you understand yeah. you're a cancer survivor? Like, was that something that you just put behind you and moved on, or did it? Was your health even then precarious? Um, no, I was better. By, I mean, I've had ongoing health issues for my whole life, but um, I wasn't dealing with those acute issues. I mean, at that point, it was, you know, looking back with my perspective now, I would say I was in a mixed bipolar state at that point, mm-hmm. but I didn't know that. I, had, I wasn't diagnosed with it. Um, we didn't really talk about that kind of stuff too much. And um, yeah, we just, I don't know. My, my parents Were your parents really, really optimistic and hopeful? Like, was their take like, it's okay, God's in control, he'll provide? Was there any anger in them? Um, yeah, I think that, I mean, there was, the years in Albuquerque, they were very bitter, um, and bitter at the church, but I think, yeah, disillusioned by, you know, they had had this call and they thought they were going to do one thing and then God rerouted them. And it it was hard to be like, what are we supposed to do now in, uh, in just the day to day? And I think they were so idealistic, you know? Well, the whole story you tell about your mom coming back from Nepal and had gone through cancer and that also, like, I just... I mean, I'm telling you, I hated your book. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, like it was so painful to read. Like she showed, you know, yeah. in essence, she shows up in a small group and, and, and they ask her how things are going. And this is like her first time. And she actually shares her heart yeah. and gets this pithy response. And you read this interaction. And again, another passage is worth reading just to sort of, I think it's an indictment at, 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 at the church in a sense. Again, and I, I don't think that's a bad thing right. because- who hasn't been in small group and thought, right. I really want to share something, but no way I will die right. first. Yeah. And it could be a premonition. It could be that you've done it before, but, but you got it to say, man, your mom, I mean, she, she didn't give up on the faith because, but she did affect her. Oh didn't yeah. You? I mean, you know, she's 64 and that's still a vivid memory um, of, wow. of, of what it felt like. To, and she's, you know, she's very private. So it's, hilarious that she got me as a daughter <laughs> it's like you know right but she um on her own is, is typically a pretty private person and um she holds everything kind of close and so the one time that she really opened up um it was kind of devastating and i think that i i know i was reading and going i wish she didn't tell them they don't deserve her i know <laughs> i know they yeah yeah it's so hard because i think you know I am. Somebody said who wrote like one of the endorsements in my book. My she said something about you know it heals as much as it cuts, and that has really been my hope for this book. That yeah, there are parts that are really uncomfortable, and it's that sort of like I would Mm -hmm. like to afflict the comfort comfortable and comfort the afflicted, right? So there's people that are really struggling and suffering and wondering, is God good? Does He love me? You know, what does that look like in my life when it's filled with all of this really hard stuff? is God good to me? You know, is there glory in this weakness? And for those people, which is the reader that I was really focused on when I was writing this book, I want them to come away with this robust theology that God is with them and that God Mm -hmm. adores them and that God loves them and that God, you know, sees them in their pain and is with them. Um, And then, you know, for those that are comfortable and that have never re- like really wrestled with these yeah. things, I would like to right, right. You know, <laughs> make it a little uncomfortable. There were some people that have said that, like it's, it was uncomfortable to read these things or like I, this changed my perspective because I haven't right. looked at it from, 
you know, from the vantage point of being the one. Well, the story you tell about being in pain in the ER and you did such a good job of describing that concept, like you were hurting, but I I mean, I'm on the other side of the ER and like sort of ambivalence until there's a reason for the pain. And people feel much more comfortable with that. Right. I think you did a masterful job of describing that. And, and, you know, it's funny because I thought, man, have I ever been subconsciously guilty of that? Like you just assume things. That, and, right. and I think, again, that yeah. was a good word. And I, I think those are things that need to be talked about. So how did you, so you're, you come to the Lord in this moment, but like in that moment, just to talk about that, like the idea that God is good in the middle of, because you, you still went through hell after that. Like, it's not like you came to Christ and everything just fell into place. You, you live happily after, <laughs> on the contrary, like right. you continue to walk through a difficult tunnel, but Tell us, talk a bit, your book is so much about hope. I mean, did you right away when Christ called you to himself and you had this moment, did you all re- immediately feel like, God, you're good? Or tell me more, more about how you lean into that. <clears throat> no, it definitely wasn't. Instant. I mean, I don't, I don't think of myself as like, and this was my conversion moment, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, I sort of felt like Saul getting you know, knocked off his, knocked mm-hmm. off his little path there and, and being rerouted. But for me, it was, um, that happened. And then I rationalized everything and um, I could not explain the peace that I felt, you know, after railing against God and and being sort of delivered from that anguish. Um, But it still wasn't like, Oh, and now I believe God is good. Um, I, what I started to do was read the Bible and I was reading as a skeptic. I was reading as somebody Mm -hmm. who was looking for all the ways to prove that this wasn't real or, um, but I was curious so I was a skeptical, you know, with my skeptical curiosity. Um, yeah. And it was, it was not uh, like instantaneous. It was months of reading the Bible and wrestling with the God that I found in those pages. And uh, the difference, you know, from my perspective is the Holy Spirit was uh, at work in my life. And I was starting to read things through a different lens. I was starting to read things through mm-hmm. the lens of God's love and his mercy and his tenderness and his um really seeing the incarnational aspect of Jesus for the first time. I mean, I had read the Bible a million times when I was a kid. I was in youth group. I grew up in a Christian home, <clears throat> but it was different. Um, it was alive. And, um, and so that was the, the, the beginning point of coming to know Jesus. And, you know, when I became a Christian, I had all the zeal, I, just like my parents. <laughs> I mean, it just reverted right back to like, mm-hmm. I'm a Christian, so I am going to go be a missionary overseas because that's where we do the important work. And, uh, and so, um, and then God didn't, that, that's not what God had in store for me. And so then the years after that, we're wrestling of what does it look like to be faithful to God in a place that I never asked to be or in a body that I don't, um, that doesn't work a lot of the time or with a mind mm-hmm. that often betrays me with mental illness. And, and so what does it look like to you to hold to the goodness of God when the things in life are, are anything but good. And, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's definitely not, you know, I talk about my book, even in the end, this might not wrap up as nicely as some would like it to. And the truth of that is that because I'm still living it and there isn't a before and after in the sense of like, this was, you know, I was, I think we, we love that story. We love the before and after we love the yeah. testimony that says I was depressed and at the end of my you know rope and I was considering suicide and then God met me and saved me. What they, what they don't like to hear is that 
six weeks ago, I, I was struggling with suicidal ideation again. And I've struggled many, many times since I've become a Christian with suicidal ideation and severe depression, that that continues to be part of my story, that God continues to meet me in that. Um, but it's a struggle that goes on and my mind isn't completely healed this side of eternity. It might never be healed this side of eternity and what um, wholeness and redemption looks like for me as being reconciled to God who is enough, but not necessarily having my circumstances change that drastically. Um, Do you fight the notions now or are you so set in, like I find myself, you know, it's funny. I was thinking even the early hours of the morning when I was reading your book, like you can look at your life and, and from the book again, I don't, you read a book, you feel like you know a person, but in some right. ways you, you can look at your life and go, man, everything is a mess. Not everything, but a lot. Yeah. But yet you right. crash beneath the surface and there's a solid faith. Okay. Whereas there's a lot of lives. I was even thinking like, like, like people can easily judge you as, Oh, okay. Okay. She's a mess. She's got, you know, misery, right. poverty, blah, blah, blah. We list them. Whereas yeah. you can look at my right. life and go, Oh my gosh, everything looks like it's perfect on the outside, but scratch a little bit deeper. Yeah. I believe in God, but like, it is not perfect, far from it. And I make a point of sharing right, that with people right. when I, you know, as much as possible. Of course, I've written about that, but but it's so easily, you know, we can make conclusions based on what we think is external on what a person is. And yet you scratch beneath the surface, we're very much alike, except honestly, if anything, you found more of a sense of confidence that God is good. Or I'd like you to talk about that because I got to be honest with you. I look at some things that might not be obvious to others in terms of what's lacking in my life, you know. And, or, you know, those longings that you feel like are still unfulfilled in your life. And I'm not even talking to me. People are like, oh, you're single. You want to be married. They'll send me emails after I say something like that and be like, we're sorry you're not married. I'm like, that's not even the least of it. Like, I don't even, that's not even in my radar. Right. There's so many things in my heart that I feel I wrestle with, with believing in my soul. Like, I know intellectually that God is good, okay? But I still, right. this many years of faith, teaching the Bible, traveling, all this stuff, I still sometimes go, man, I hope he's as good as I think he is because, and I wrestle right. with that. How do you like now all these years later, like talk about that. Do you wrestle with it or have you put a nail on the, that's it. You're done. God is good no matter what. And you know, how do you deal with that? How do you con convince yourself in those moments of weakness when things aren't going your way, when you're balled up on the bed, that God is indeed good in that moment? Yeah. You know, um, I think there's a lot of uh, that intellectual ascent where we say, yes, God is good. And we believe that. And that's part of the, you know, the journey of faith is, is to believe these things that we sometimes don't feel in the middle of a depression, deep depression. I don't feel that God's good. Um, sometimes I don't even think he's real yeah. um, when I'm in the midst of a really yeah. dark, yeah. I think, oh my gosh, what if this is all just it all up? I think that I made it all up. And like, maybe I just convinced myself that this is real because I needed it so badly and it's not, and everything's a sham. And I mean, you know, That's you right. can just cycle down that rabbit hole of, of doubt, like crushing, debilitating doubt. Um, and so I am not immune from that in any way. And I, you know, when I wrote this book, I want to say like, I, you know, have arrived at this place. I still struggle. I still doubt, but I feel like that is my journey of faith is that um, when I struggle, when I doubt, instead of pulling away, I press in harder to God. Mm -hmm. I press in harder to, you know, it is that sort of anguished crying out, like, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? And um, I just think that that's such a beautiful testimony of, you know, Jesus crying out, you know, why have you forsaken me? Sometimes mm -hmm. that is, that is our faith. The strongest faith is crying out to God when we can't feel him at all. 
trusting that, you know, we can cry out to him even when he doesn't feel as present or he doesn't feel as good. Um, you know, I talk in the book about, about becoming fluent in the language of hope. And one of the things for me is like the practicing that language, practicing sort of these, uh, breaking it down to these syllables of, of what does it look like to you? How positive hope. declarations. No, I mean, I'm being a little cynical, but like, tell me about that. I want to lean into that a bit. How do you practice the language of hope? Is it as simple as, you know, the prosperity preacher go and say, I am good. I am beautiful. You know, no, no. Because this is really, I mean, this is where the money is right there. Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah. How do you do that? When you don't feel like doing that, when it's not in that moment at the retreat where you feel like everything's good with God and you're at the front of the church with your hands raised when, you know, those yeah. are easy moments right. to say that, but how do you do it on a day by day, even not even in balled up on the bed, just routine. My life is not changing. What I want hasn't happened. How do you declare hope? Yeah. You know, I, I look at the Psalms a lot and I see wrestling. And um, I think that that hope comes out of that wrestling with God to see his goodness, wrestling with um, the things in our heart that, that would deny that God is good. Um, the things in our minds that would deny that God is good and really paying attention and looking for, um, for his presence. And I think for me, some of that comes down to, I write the reminders of God's goodness. I forget mm. um, when I'm in a really bad season, I forget that he's good at all. I forget all of the things, you know, so easily. Um, I think about, you know, that, that um, the song where it goes, you know, bind my heart to thee, right? So like that mm. is part of that, that, talking about how I, how I hope, how I have hope. Um, part of that is just, it's like muscle memory. You yeah. go there so often. Um, I write the reminder. I mean, part of the, my ministry has come out of writing, but I, I've written my whole life in journals. Um, before I ever wrote anything online, I, I wrote um, my way through to process my feelings, to remember things. And I still do that. I still write down, um, this just sort of like erecting altars to remember the goodness of God, because I know a couple miles down the road, I'll forget everything that he's done um, and I'll be yeah. faithless again. And I'll, I'll doubt again and I'll go, how can you be good in any of this? And so it helps me to be able to retrace my steps and find my way sort of back to the goodness of God, back to the heart of God that is with me in these things. And I can look in retrospect and I can go, okay, I see the areas that yeah. God is moving and has moved and that he's with me. And I, I see the areas where his presence was so powerful. And that carries me through the times when I think I'm not on the mountaintop anymore. I'm in the, you know, this valley. What does that look like to walk through this valley clinging to the knowledge that I trust God's character and his goodness. Uh, I have faith, even if I don't have the answers or things don't change because I'm now okay with the mystery. I'm okay with not having all the answers and realizing that God's presence in the midst of this is, is enough. Um, and so, yeah, I write the reminders of God's faithfulness. That's awesome. Do you uh, feel alone in your walk now or have you developed, like talk about community a bit. How have the, how has the Christian community, your church community received, you know, you with, with your story and you seem like you have a strong community. Talk a little bit about that. Because a lot has been said about the church not understanding mental illness. And I think it's come a long ways in the last decade, but maybe not near where it needs to go. But talk about your own life in that. Do you feel alone and isolated or 
do you feel like you've got good connections? Um, I think I have, I have some good connections. Um, church has been really hard for, for me. It has like, you know, I'm pretty honest in the book, but I value it and I think it's important, but it's been, um, it's been hard. And um, especially after the election, we live in, in Oregon. So there's Bend, Oregon, which is the big city. We live about 30 minutes outside of the city in wow. very rural dirt roads, you know, country area and lots and lots of support for Trump and his policies and his things. Lots of very conservative um, white Christians who white evangelical Christians who um, have a certain way of thinking. And after, uh, after the election, it was very difficult. Church yeah. was very, very hard um, for me. And the communities that I was in all of a sudden um, felt very, very difficult. People mm. that were willing to walk with me in terms of mental illness and were understanding and were, um, were, you know, on this journey with me, were not on the same journey with me when it came to racial issues and pointing out disparity and systemic well, racism that was like the line that was drawn where they couldn't, like you couldn't yeah see yeah and couldn't you know couldn't be and so it's trying to stay in relationship i lost some friends um you know they thought that i was being divisive by caring about you were pretty vocal you felt like in general or just like in what you know what i mean like in general it, you how could do people talk about that like in your community a lot or just people yeah, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I'm pretty oh. vocal. Um, and, yeah, I, I don't like yeah. confrontation at all. It yeah, makes me yeah, yeah, super yeah. sick and I feel like I want to throw up. But I'm also um, a pretty passionate and fiery, you know, about the things that right. I care about. And so I have a hard time being like, ah. Um, no big deal. And so yeah. there have been really awkward conversations. I, I try to avoid politics in general for a lot of reasons, one of which is that I'm Lebanese and grew up right. in the civil war in Lebanon and I've learned better. But, but even without that factor, I don't fit into church. And I right. feel like it's an awfully lonely. Yeah. Still, after all the, I've interviewed my pastor on the podcast, and, it, and I, I still kind of feel like, like I'll be honest, there were parts of the book, especially you get to the acknowledgement, and I was sort of reading your story, and I thought, you're much better connected in some ways than I am. And I and I, I, I applaud that, first of all. I think I think if anything, that's God's grace also. And some of it's probably because you're very open about where you're at, and I think, and, and and I think you you draw, you know, friendships to you. But I also, you know, I think a lot of times we also make conclusions on other people. Again, like I might look like somebody who has a lot of friends. You see what I mean? Like I just think you judge things yeah. in, in the Christian world that might or not, might not at all be true right. if you don't hear somebody's story. And, yeah. And Well, and there's a lot of limitations on, like my health is not good. Like right now they're having controlled burns outside. Yeah. Um, and the, in the forest, there was a forest fire this weekend and I, um, I have really severe asthma. Wow. So that means I'm inside with my air purifier and not going out much cause I'm wheezing oh. and, um, you know, so I have, I have a lot of health problems and then I have mental health problems that make you know, I have anxiety issues. And things. So there is an isolation that happens a lot of times for, for people who are mentally or chronically ill where it is hard to find community because it's not reliable. And I've had to really struggle with what does it look like to be faithful when you can't be consistent, when I can't promise that I'll be there um, because I don't know if I can be there. I don't know if I'll be able to breathe. I don't know if I'll be feeling okay. I don't know, you know, um, 
I don't know what my capacity will be. And so it makes it very, very hard to. Well, you talked a bit uh, in the book about this. And I think it's also like to feel like you're constantly the burden and the person in need. Right. On the other yeah. way. But, but in yep. a sense, isn't that what the local church is for is, is to, I mean, that was my understanding of Acts chapter two. It's like to come around the side, right. people who are in need. What, what is the hope for the church in dealing with, I believe, by the way, a huge percentage of the American population has far more need than we care to acknowledge and in the churches, right. but we just sort of gloss over, do our hour on Sunday and get back to our, our life. And I mean, how can we change that? What is your dream for the church in that? Yeah. I mean, my dream is that we would we would love each other as we love ourselves, you know? My dream is that we would yeah. see ourselves as neighbors and um, that we would care about, you know, the things that other – like, it's it's being in tune with other people's pain. What does that look like practically, right? I mean, yeah, like, what do you wish people in church – Well, so for instance, like, uh, you know, I we don't have medical insurance. Um, we have mm-hmm. about – well, probably now like $15,000 in medical debt for a six-hour – appointment that my husband had to go to the ER. Um, they thought he had kidney stones wow. or something. So uh, they did a CT scan. And so we're, we've got huge amounts of debt. Um, and uh, I, I go to a clinic that has sliding scale, but I have to pay for my psychiatrist. So every three months I have to pay, you know, money to go to my psychiatrist. Yeah. I, I have been offered meds that probably would have less side effects, but I can't afford them every month. So I'm on a different antipsychotic that has more side effects. And, you know, so, so paying for my meds every month is, is difficult paying for, yeah, uh, you know, these other things are difficult. And the, and the thing I think that's hard, we're really pretty awesome in church about crisis. So if my house burns down, um, I guarantee you that there would be a GoFundMe and people would support because they can, people can understand crisis, but long-term suffering is something that people right. start to get. It's burdensome, not only to the people that are suffering it, but right. it's burdensome to the people that are around it. Uh, for somebody to say, I'm going to walk right. with you, you know, for the next 10 years and help you pay this one bill, or I'm going to show up, you know, long-term and be in your life in this way, or I'm going to step in and be the person that helps you with your kids because I see this, this area, you know, and not just for like the crisis, Oh, we'll take your kid, you know, but, but the ongoing thing, like there are not a lot of people that are willing to sacrifice themselves in that way because it costs too much. And we are so individualistic. We have, you know, our dream, our dreams and Mm -hmm. our desires and our things. And we don't see ourselves as being part of a body. We don't see the needs of others being um, needs that we should step in and meet. Um, you know, even when I was, I was having a, my mom broke her back. I was taking care of her. Um, and I don't mm. write about it that much in the book, but, but I was having, you know, this terrible, I was in mixed bipolar state. I was, I was in terrible shape. And my options were, you know, to go to the psych hospital here and be admitted. Um, but I'm like, who's going to take care of like, I, you know, I'm trying to like be rational in the middle of the message to the psychiatrist. That was yeah. really hard to read too. I know. And eventually right. they called you back by God's grace. Right. Like, I know. And I, I mean, it's, it's, it, right. I could understand yeah. exactly the part. Again, yeah. when you hear the story, right. all of it from sitting in the ER waiting room to, I mean, it changes things when right. you get to person's dynamic and you're like, Oh my God, this is like, so it could be somebody in my small group right. and somebody could be living that and not reach. I, yeah. wouldn't, I right. wouldn't call anybody. If I was in the ER and 
I yeah, would just be right. like my sister. And you do. You just go through things. Then I mean, I feel like- that time when I was there, I didn't have those $400 to go see the psychiatrist and we didn't have it. And it was one of my mom's friends who stepped in and said, we will pay for you to go to that appointment. We'll pay for your whatever meds they prescribe. And that was a lifeline. Yeah. I mean, I really don't know uh, where I would have been if I couldn't have gone and seen her and gotten on. So not only did, you know, did God provide um, the answer to the phone call, you know, my psychiatrist picking up and making space for me, but it was somebody in our community yeah. that said, I see you hurting and in need and let me step in and help in this very tangible way. And well, and, and we talk about the church being the hope of the world. This is the hope podcast. I mean, I think sometimes right. we make hope so yeah. esoteric yeah. when it's like that showing up at a door uh, you know, like I even think of when you're talking about this crisis, like I see it now with the Syrian refugee crisis, you know, five years ago, everybody wanted to help Syrians. Now, every time we do a mission trip, I think, oh, people are going to think we're right. still asking for the same thing. But it's like, yep. they're still yep. living in tents, like nothing. And, and so it is, it's this tension. And I'm embarrassed sometimes to ask. And I'm like, I, yeah. then I think, wait a second. This is like, you know, so like, and, and, and then that big question, right. God, why aren't you doing something? And you know, he could heal you. He could yeah. fix their country. You know, all these things that you think, but in yet, and that's what you're talking about in the book, the glorious weakness of finding hope. I mean, no, that doesn't right. excuse the church, but in it, you know, nobody might help you. You're finding right. solace and strength, really strength. In yeah. The Lord. yeah. And I think that one thing, you know, that I see with, with weakness is that um, being honest and being vulnerable about it opens up the door for other people to admit one for other people to admit that they're, I mean, I don't know how many times people have pulled me aside that look like they have it all together and have said, Oh my gosh, I read your right. you know post and I struggle with anxiety too. I have my whole life or I struggle with, and, and they're not somebody that I would ever think would relate to me. Um, all of a sudden is telling me their story. Why do you think anxiety and depression have taken such a hold of our culture this decade? Oh gosh, that's such a hard question. That's such a hard question. Um, I think there are, you know, so many reasons probably, uh, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, some of them can be attributed to disconnection. Some of them can be attributed to maybe the busyness and production and our drive Mm -hmm. towards success. Some of it is probably physical with, you know, things we're ingesting in the environment. Some of it is, I mean, I think there are so, you know, some of it's genetic. Um, so I don't, I, you know, I don't know that there's one like, Right. finger point right. on the one thing that causes all of the things. But um, I do think that there are so many people that are struggling yeah. and that are struggling in isolation and are struggling outside of community because they don't have a safe space to be able to admit that this is the area that they're hurting. And I think it does yeah. an injustice to the church as well, because um, if people don't know your need or don't know about things, not only, you know, can they not step in? They, they can't be a part of the solution or the part of helping, helping to be there and walk with our neighbors. Um, what is a, what does success look like to you? Say you're at the end of your life. I've been a success. If what is it, what are you aiming for? What do you like to, 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 to what do you hope for in terms of your own Alia Joy success story? Yeah. Um, in terms of my success story, I would like to, uh, be remembered as somebody who was kind and uh, somebody who loved the Lord as best as she could. Um, I would mm-hmm. love that, you know, 
that that was evident in my life and that I loved people that were near me. Um, and that I tried as hard as I could to be faithful. Um, but in the end, I really would say, you know, that my life is a testament that all is grace. Everything that came mm -hmm. to my life, everything that was in my life, any good that came out of it was just God's grace. Right. How, what are you working on now? What's your, just breathing? You got another book in store? Um, I do have a two book deal. So somewhere down the, down the road, I will be writing another book, but I think that's going to be a long way off. I, you know, I told my public. Yeah. Have you even like, I mean, it, you got to stay in the place you're in or you, you're going to like blow everything out and be like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. I'm like, I need to write my next yeah, book about like yeah, yeah. how to deal with blessings when you're, you know, right. on vacation in Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, I've been on makeover Joanna Gaines for making new house. Test me, Lord. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, it's funny because people are like, "Oh, you wrote your whole story in this book," and I'm like, "I skipped giant." I mean, there's, you know, there's so much more. Really. So uh, you know, I don't know. I might be writing another. We haven't talked about. I mean, I really, I, I want to give away two books. I really do. But more than that, I don't care if you don't get the book away. If you're listening to my voice right now, I, I want to say I'm not saying this. I mean, you got to get this book. It's um, you, I read it in a day, so it's easy to read. It's riveting. There's so many aspects of her of Alia's story that we did not go over. It's called Glorious Weakness: Discovering God and All We Lack, and um, it's uh, honestly, I, I love talking to you and I love your writing and I look forward to the next book. How can people connect with you? Um, I have a blog, aliajoy.com. I'm not on there very much, um, right now with book lunch, but, um, but that's the place that's kind of the hub. I can email you there if they want to, or go on yep. Amazon, right? Yep. What do you think and there's the a book? link. If you go to my uh, leahjoy.com, there's a uh, glorious weakness tab and it has all of the links to all the places you can buy it and then you're on twitter i yep. saw i think i'm always on twitter like i'm also i'm on twitter as aliyah joy h um and then all other social media as aliyah joy well we'll put uh, we try to put the links when we run the podcast yeah. and uh thank you for your time i know this is a busy season for you and we deeply appreciate it yeah thanks so much for having me it's good talking to yeah. you Hey guys, I will see you again next week. If you have any comments or questions or anything we talked about or prayer requests, lena at livingwithpower.org. And as usual, stay rooted in Christ. He is your hope. I'll see you again next week.